0: Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center.
1: Good evening. Welcome to our conversations at the Carter Center. My name is Lee Ellingson. I'm the assistant director of the mental health program here. Um, Normally, the director, Dr. Tom Borneman, would be here, but he's experienced a death in his family, and he sends his regrets. Uh, Just a few housekeeping notes. Uh, if you need to use the restrooms, there's upstairs and downstairs. There are standing microphones available for Q&A section, two downstairs, and we actually have one upstairs, which is very unusual and very impressive. That must uh, speak to how many people we have in attendance tonight. Um, during the Q&A period, you can come to the uh, uh, microphone, and we sort of ask to, that you be respectful of other people's time and, and ask questions. And I would like to welcome the ambas- ambassadors and Legacy Circle members who are with us in attendance tonight. This is always such a pleasant um, event for the entire Carter Center to have so many friends here. The, um, this is our 10th annual Executive Briefing and Presidential Reception. And we know that you have traveled from many parts of the country and, indeed, around the globe, and we appreciate you joining us here to celebrate our 25th anniversary of the Carter Center. If there are any executive briefing members present who are in the wrong place or who didn't intend to stay (laughs) there is a bus Um, and if you go out in the lobby there are staff members who can direct you. This evening's conversations is the last in this year's series. We run on the academic calendar just like Emory University The first in the series is always a town hall meeting with um, President and Mrs. Carter. And the mental health program is pleased whenever we have an opportunity to host one of these, especially to such a large group of our friends. The mental health program, um, part of our mission is to reduce stigma surrounding mental illnesses. And we do that through our journalism fellowship program. So I don't think you're going to get a chance to hear about that tomorrow, so I just wanted to give you sort of an update, since many of you have been coming for many years. Um, This year's class looks as good as last year's class, and we're pleased to say that this week we received 90 applications for our six domestic spots. Um, We also work to facilitate policy change through a variety of mechanisms in the mental health field, mostly through our symposium. This past symposium addressed the mental health effects of Hurricane Katrina, and next year's symposium will be looking at prevention and recovery and wellness. The mental health program was also um, part of an initiative that was led by a a very prominent businessman locally, Tom Johnson, um, who was the former CEO of CNN and now but is currently also the chairman of the LBJ Foundation. So we don't talk about what he used to be. This is what he is. He's also a very proud grandfather. Um, And we have uh, that Atlanta Business Leaders Initiative has been taken over by uh, the Mental Health Association of Georgia, and the Carter Center continues to be active. And so you'll meet some of the uh, uh, members of that in tonight's panel as well. And now, it is my great pleasure to introduce Mrs. Carter. And I have to tell you that when I found out I was doing this in Tom's stead, I was fine with everything he had to say because, frankly, I wrote most of it. <laughs> <laughs> but the sticking point is always, how do you introduce Mrs. Carter? And, frankly, I mean, everyone who's here knows Mrs. Carter, so I don't know. need to go into a great amount of detail. Um, but I can tell you... Um, What a pleasure it is to work at the Carter Center and to work for someone who has advocated for so long for an issue that um, is not always popular and that um, she didn't have to advocate for. And so she's a great inspiration to those of us who work for her. Mrs. Carter.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Lee, for that introduction. And I want to also thank Lee and all of the mental health program staff. Would you stand up? Because I'm going to say my few words and I'm going to sit down and enjoy the program and I'm not going to be here again to thank them. So I just want, I wanted you to see them and just to tell them that I am so proud of it. They do a great job. So so thank you. Um, Well, I want to welcome you all to the Carter Center. I especially want to welcome the Ambassadors and the Bassin Legacy Circle uh, people who are here tonight. And I have been kind of winding through you all afternoon and uh, I was afraid you would think I was not being very friendly. But I was rushing from one thing. We have, when we come to the Carter Center about one one week a month, it's not always a whole week. We have to come in and out more than that, but we schedule one week a month. And they try to fill up everything we have to do. In, uh, that one in that one few days, and so I can kind of go from one thing hurriedly to another. So if you think I passed you and didn't speak to you, just you'll know it was because I was busy, and I was actually trying not to let anybody see me <laughs> as I wanted to. <laughs> so, um, well, uh, Lee has talked about the these conversations, and we have five a year. The first one, is, she said, we do. And then we take turns with the different programs at the Carter Center. And as she said, I'm always, tonight is my time and I'm always glad. And uh, we have a really interesting program in store for you. Uh, it's an issue that's very important and that affects so many people in every community in our country. We're going to be hearing about mental health at work. And we have a good panel that I'll introduce to you, but I did want to say just a word or two about uh, our mental health programs. We focus primarily on policy and on stigma. Um, we have a, a program, um, mental health fellowships for journalists. To we we were brainstorming one day and we thought if we could, if we could um, educate a group of journalists who knew the issues and could report accurately on them, then we thought that would maybe help overcome stigma. And it has been so successful. And for you. Um, Ambassadors and legacy circle people i 'll be talking about that a little a little bit uh, tomorrow because it 's a really exciting program um, but on policy, we have a symposium every year, and we bring together maybe two hundred leaders in the mental health field, at least two hundred leaders and they represent the major well maybe sixty mental health organizations in the country, maybe more plus we have um, people from the SAMHSA and the federal um, mental health um, uh, agencies, as well as some state. We just have the leaders in the whole field. And we, we discuss a current issue, talk about it, um, develop recommendations, and then uh, encourage people to go home and do something about, uh, adopt some of those recommendations. Um, for instance, last year, um, our program was on the, the mental health effects of, effects of Katrina. So many people are, are suffering from mental and emotional problems because uh, in the aftermath of Katrina. And it just happened that this crossed my desk today. I, mean, it, I, was, I was so pleased when I picked it up because I was talking to about it tonight. It said, last November, the Carter Center challenged us at the Symposium on Disaster Mental Health, in wake of Hurricane Katrina, to take concrete steps that would move local communities and the nation forward. And so she wanted me to note the release from the Working Group on Community Engagement in Health Emergency Planning that was convened at the um, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Um, It is one attempt to help minimize the impact of future disasters and to foster the political reconciliation and psychological healing that are called for in the aftermath of Katrina. I was so, and that happens. We people do go home and do something about these issues. So I'm really pleased that that came across my desk today. Well, the issue that we're presenting tonight, as I said, is mental health in the workplace, and um, one of the issues that the whole mental health community has been working on for a very long time is parity in insurance, and that relates very much to the program tonight. Parity in Insurance parity for mental health illnesses, just the same as those for other illnesses, and um, if if this could come to pass, it would just help enormously. And you're going to hear—I'm sure you're going to hear—more about this um, from the panel tonight. Um, we have a chance to pass this legislation this year. I'm not sure we. Well, I've got my fingers crossed but we haven't been able to get it out of committee in the past. We have enough votes in, the, in the, the Senate and the House of Representatives to pass the legislation, but we have not been able to get it out of committees. And so this year we have our, our fingers crossed. That maybe it will pass. And what you all could do is write to your senators and representatives and say, uh, uh, I mean, to write, write to, you could write to all of them and tell them, your local ones, and tell them to um, support parity. It is so important and could help so many people get the services they need uh, when now they're not available, and so many people can't they can't, act, they can't access them because they don't have we don't have programs. The president's new freedom Commission said the mental health system in this country is in a shambles, and there's no way to fix it. We need to start all over and try and transform the mental health system so if we could get our our um, national uh, representatives to vote for parity. It would help more than anything that I can think of um, in the field right now. And, um, and also another thing that I think about parity is I have always said that if insurance covers it, it would be all right to have it. And I really <laughs> believe that. And I think it would do more to overcome stigma than anything we could think of. Well, um, conditions in the workplace can greatly affect Employees' mental health and their productivity, and I've made a lot of speeches to employee benefit managers, stressing the importance of mental health coverage for employees uh, in their companies. Um, not only does it make for a put-down healthier, happier workplace, but and Tom told me to take out happy. He just wanted to be productive. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be talking tonight. You can ask him about that. Um, but it's cost-effective. There's less absenteeism, less turnover of jobs, greater productivity, and higher quality of work. And how can, how can those companies resist that when I talk to them about it? I don't know. Um, also, come that companies that have provided these services, and we've been, doing, we've been doing research on this for a long time, so we'd have enough uh, statistics to prove that uh, companies that provide these services have seen that their overall health costs come down after a few years. Because when people are suffering from depression or anxiety, um, they go to their primary care doctor and they try to treat them. They don't, they keep, they have headaches, they don't feel good, they have stomach problems and so forth. But when they get mental health services, they have so many fewer, um, there's so many fewer times that they go for physical or other, I don't like to separate physical and mental. I don't think there should be any distinction. It's all part of our body and biological. Uh, Well, today, because of research and what we've learned about the brain, mental illnesses can be diagnosed, they can be treated effectively, and the overwhelming majority of people um, with these illnesses can lead normal lives, living at home, going to school, working just like people with diabetes or high blood pressure. Um, And I I think and I hope that employers are beginning to understand the importance. And some of the panel panel can tell me more about that. Uh, but I, I hope that they're um, beginning to understand how important men, mental health services are um, to maintaining and improving their employees' health. Well tonight we have four distinguished speakers who can speak about the importance not only of having adequate mental health benefits for themselves and their families, but also um, on the role that corporate culture (coughs) plays um, in employees' willingness to access these um, services, these benefits. Well, normally the director of our mental health program um, introduces the uh, panelists and is the moderator for this event. But uh, tonight, even before Tom was not going to be here, we had such good speakers that we... Um, decided to call on Cynthia, um, to uh, Cynthia Wainscott, and I will tell you about her, um, to um, be the moderator, and she will do that. C- Cynthia is such a good friend. She's a wonderful mental health advocate. I've worked with her for years and years, and I love her. So, um, and she's agreed to 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 do this tonight. She's a member of the board of directors of Mental Health America. Do you know what Mental Health America is? The National Mental Health Association has changed its name. It is now Mental Health America, and she's on the board of directors. She served as education director of the Mental Health Association of Minnesota and then as executive director of the National Mental Health Association of Georgia. With 16 years of experience, she's an established leader in mental health education. She directed a pilot site for the National Institute of Mental Health um, uh, Depression Awareness, recognition and treatment program. It was a program that they had to educate people and carried it all around the country, I think, that, that program, um, developing a training model for education programs nationwide. She's a member of the Institute of Medicine Committee that authored a, a recently released report on improving the quality of health care for mental and substance use conditions. And that was actually released here at the Carter Center. And one of my mental health task force people was the chairman of that committee, and they really hurried to get it uh, get it finished in time. I think it was 2005, because last year was Katrina, for our mental health symposium that year. And it was we were so pleased to see that because the Institute of Medicine did one on um, quality in health care. But mental health and substance use has never been part of public health. It is becoming now, because I think Centers for Disease Control, we've been encouraging them and, try and getting them involved. And I think... I think people are beginning to realize that it is a public health issue. Um, Her passion for advocacy and education is fueled by the experiences of her mother, daughter, and granddaughter who have all successfully lived with mental illness. Thank you, Cynthia, for doing that for us. Another, Another local friend to the mental health program is Tom Johnson. Not only is he a strong business leader and media expert, but he is a mental health advocate as well. He's worked tirelessly in this community and in many other communities, um, in the corporate community, to get them to understand the importance of mental health um, care in their businesses. He's focused on access and quality of mental health services, and he lives this commitment through his work. Tom is the former chairman and CEO of the CNN News Group, And before CNN, he spent 10 years with the Los Angeles Times. In 1999, Tom received the Paul White Award from the Radio-Television News Directors Association. That's its highest honor. Congratulations again, Tom. More recently, he completed a project in collaboration with two local business leaders that um, um, Lee told you a little bit about, J.B. Fuqua and Larry Gellistat. All of these suffered from mental illnesses, and they came together... In, in just a force here in Atlanta to get the business community to understand um, the importance of mental health coverage. And now Mental Health America of Georgia with Cynthia has um, has picked up on this initiative and will be working with local and state businesses and the National Business Group on Health and others in the future. Tom speaks openly about his own experience with depression and we've um, and I actually participated with him. He and I were together on the Larry King Show one time. Yeah, he's he's been a good friend. Just been wonderful uh, to work. His voice is so um, so important in speaking out on mental health issues. And speaking of the National Business Group on Health, I'm pleased that Dr. Henry Harbin is with us this evening. Uh, In 2005, he served as co-chair of the National Business Group on Health work group that produced the Employer's Guide to Behavioral Health Services. And I learned, and I think this is true, that behavioral health services, because a long time I didn't know, even in the mental health field, I didn't know what people were talking about, but it's mental health and substance use. And and he, he helped produce that guide. He's a psychiatrist with over 30 years of experience in the behavioral health field. He's held a number of senior positions in both public and private health organizations. He's been the CEO of two national behavioral health companies, Green Spring Health Services and Magellan Health Services. At the time he was CEO of Magellan, it was the largest managed behavioral health care company managing the mental health and substance abuse benefits of almost 70 million people. That's a big job. In 2002 and 2003, he served on the President's New Freedom Commission on Mental Health. And as part of that commission, he was chair of the subcommittee for the interface between mental health and general medicine. Since 2004, he's been providing um, healthcare consulting services to a number of private and public organizations. And we'll welcome you tonight, Dr. Harvey. And our last, the last one I will mention. Um, is Ron Bachman. We first heard of Ron because of his work with PricewaterhouseCoopers doing the actuarial analysis um, for offering mental health coverage on par with general health. He worked all of the finances out to show us what would happen. Um, And his work has been crucial in proving that parity in coverage does not have to lead to dramatic drastic increases in health care costs. And we thank you for that, Ron. A number of national leaders, including former US Surgeon General David Satcher, have said that there is no scientific basis for treating mental health benefits differently from other medical benefits. These days, Ron is um, president and CEO of Healthcare Visions, a leadership firm here in Georgia dedicating to the adv- advancing ideas and policy initiatives that are transforming the U.S. healthcare market and um, transforming the mental health um, system is very important, and I'm sure Ron is going to talk about that tonight. The major goals of healthcare visions are to advance consumer-based solutions to lower the number of people who are uninsured, improve mental health coverage, develop the concept of consumer-centric Medicare and Medicaid, and advance employer introductions of healthcare consumerism. He's also a fellow of the Center for Health Transformation and a senior fellow at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation. As a fellow at the Y River Group on Health, he was instrumental in three seminal reports an employer's guide to patient directed health care benefits, an employer's guide to health care consumerism, and an employer's guide to pharmaceutical benefits. Well, you can see the, the quality of our panel tonight. And they are all experts in the field, and we're just really pleased, very pleased and welcome you uh, tonight. And Cynthia, I'll turn it over to you, wonderful.
3: Thank, <laughs> Thank you Thank. You. Thank you,. While
0: we're getting settled, I want to ask you a question. Aren't we lucky to have a leader like that? We had a little while to talk to each other before we started tonight, and I think uh, Ron said something that really kind of defines the panel when he said, I'm a man on a mission. I think the the three people here who are panelists today are all people who are really dedicated to, to make it better in America for people who have mental illnesses. We thought we would start out with each of us just taking a couple of minutes uh, to tell you what their perspective is and we have three really pretty unique perspectives up here and mine you've already heard about that is as the family member of dearly loved wonderful successful happy people who are living well with mental illnesses. I know it can work and I know that it doesn't for most people, and that's not right that most people don't get the care they need. So I've got a fire burning, not a little closer, that better. I've got a fire burning to make it better. And I think you'll hear that each of these people has a, has a perspective. So we'll start with Henry.
4: Thanks, Cynthia. Can you hear this? Can you hear me okay? Um, well, as you heard from Mrs. Carter's introduction, I come from a, both a medical psychiatric background, but most of my career has been in the, in the management side, both in the public mental health system and in private mental health, mental health care companies. So I have spent most of my career trying to explain mental health to non-mental health professionals, health professionals, politicians, and business people, trying to convince them that this is worth the investment and this is where you really won't address the problems in the broader health care system unless you do a better job with mental health and substance abuse. You'll hear some of that in our panel today about some of the evidence for that. And I I was I was here we were, earlier we had a, a, a really good meeting with following up on Tom Johnson and the Carter Center's leadership with senior uh businesses in the Atlanta area. And I think we're on the verge of maybe pulling off a major project here which would have had a lot of national Can you hear me? Okay. How's now? I guess if I move away at all. Okay. Can you hear me okay now? Back? Yeah. Um, I think we have an opportunity to work with the Carter Center, the National Business Group on Health, and Mental Health America, Cynthia, um, uh, to do something unique here and to get a group of businesses who would implement many of these recommendations that came out of the National Business Group, which would significantly transform the private employer purchasing of mental health services.
5: Ron Bachman, as was mentioned. I am an actuary by background. I normally don't tell people that. Uh, keep that a secret, But so that's out tonight already. I do come from the technical side of doing analysis on, on costs and the impact of mental health on the, on the financial aspects of, of, of the cost of health care. Uh, I am on the, uh, the board of Mental Health America of Georgia, also on the advisory board of Skyland Trails, a facility here in Atlanta that provides services. I've been involved in... Uh, the mental health issues across the board. I like to say I, I work with both uh, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, and I'm a think tank member of a number of those, and I find that uh, the obvious uh, mental illness is not a partisan issue. Uh, we have policy issues and questions, but it is broad-based. There's support across the board. As Mrs. Carter mentioned, there have been votes uh, in Congress for years to pass the legislation we've been talking about, uh, and a few... Uh, A few leadership positions tend to bottle things up, but there is a broad-based support for the types of issues and concerns of treating people um, equally, uh, uh, mental health, whether you call it mental health parity, mental health inclusion, mental health as any other illness. Um, Folks I work with consider that there are four aspects of human existence that you need to have a complete health care system mental, physical, social, and spiritual, and without those four parts actually integrating, you really can't provide uh, adequate, uh, broad-based needs for, for people to, uh, to live their lives uh, appropriately. So mental health is very much a part of that, and I look forward to the conversation and discussion tonight.
3: First, I'd like to uh, thank very much uh, Mrs. Carter for her leadership. I mean, this has been a spectacular success. Uh, both here in the Atlanta area and across the country. And I really believe that uh, she has done so much and continues to do so much that uh, really is making an enormous difference in the lives of people uh, th- throughout our country. I also want to thank all of you for attending tonight and thank you for your support uh, of the Carter Center. It cannot be done without you and the kind of uh, consistent, ongoing support uh, that you provide. Uh, It is necessary. Uh, Depression invaded my life in my uh, mid-40s. I'm now 65, uh, even though uh, I don't look it. (laughs) But depression sapped me of my strength. It robbed me of my energy. Uh, It brought me almost inexplicably Uh, to the point of suicide. Uh, Every morning for me was incredibly difficult. Uh, Just the act of getting up out of bed each morning uh, to go to work as the publisher and chief executive officer of the Los Angeles Times was very tough. At work I did everything I could to keep my depression secret, secret from everybody including uh, all of my staff, with the exception of my personal assistant. At home, I shared my intense pain only with my wife, my son, and my daughter. I was ashamed to admit, as so many people are, that I had what was described as a mental illness. I was very reluctant, in fact, would not see a medical professional, a psychiatrist, for quite a while. And I hated the idea of taking a, an antidepressant, a mood-altering antidepressant. But fighting depression alone, uh, without professional help, did not work. My condition worsened, and at times, I would try to recharge by lying on the floor in my office uh, beneath my desk. I was baffled by the sadness that I felt, by the loss of self-confidence that I felt, by a feeling of being trapped at the bottom of a very deep, dark well. After my wife Edwina of Athens, Georgia forced me uh, to see a psychiatrist at UCLA did I get a clear diagnosis of chronic depression. And it was only after a roller coaster ride of several different antidepressants that I began to move from the darkness back into the light. A career move uh, from uh, chief executive of the Los Angeles Times to uh, chief executive of CNN in 1990, a new physician, Dr. Charles Nimeroff of Emory. And a new antidepressant started me on a road back to good, solid mental health. Based on my own personal experiences, I am convinced that most serious cases of depression can be treated successfully. But all depression sufferers need to receive a diagnosis by trained professionals. I think that all depression sufferers Will benefit by a combination of talk therapy and medication to deal with the chemical imbalances and emotional issues that we confront. But I care most about you, your children, your grandchildren, and future generations to come. I care about my children, my grandchildren, and future generations of my family. I especially care About the uninsured, the underinsured, and especially the children. We need insurance plans that cover mental health just as thoroughly as our insurance programs cover general health. In my opinion, healing a broken mind is more critical than healing a broken arm or a broken leg. Business leaders ensure their office computers. They should ensure the most important computers of them all. They should ensure the most important computers of them all their minds and the minds of those who work with them. And I can assure you nobody has done a better job than Ron Bachman in this country of establishing what treatment can do. We also so badly need to remove the stigma that is associated with depression. More of us need to speak out, and yet it was one of the most painful decisions of my life when I finally decided to go public. Because just the very fact that in a workplace somebody can say, "Well, oh, you know, Tom Johnson has a mental health problem. It can, in fact, stop promotions. It can, in fact, affect your classifications if you're in in, in the service and others. But I, I think we need to demonstrate that workers at all levels, all of us can be more productive, we can reduce absenteeism, we can make this a stronger, better country, and for that matter, a stronger, better world uh, if we provide the kind of mental health care that we need. And we must not continue to slash state and federal funding. I believe we are, in fact, on the verge of finding new medications and new treatments that will help us all. Now is not the time to retreat. Thank you.
0: A Couple of themes came up there pretty strongly. One was uh, payment barriers, another is stigma. Since Mrs. Carter started talking about parity, let's explore that a little bit. Um, why do we need federal parity legislation if some states have addressed it? And We're going to do this. We're going to try to just discuss. We'll start questions and talk.
5: I, I guess I can start. I've been working on federal parity legislation for almost 15 years, and as Mrs. Carter said, I think we actually are at the precipice of actually getting something passed. We need it because there are about... Uh, There's a few passes this year, the state of Washington and New York actually have passed state legislation, but every state's a little different, and there's not a lot of uniformity, and some cover certain illnesses at parity, and some don't cover certain illnesses and certain size groups, and it's sort of a mishmash, and the states have actually been the petri dishes of experimentation, which has been good. Um, we've seen what works, we see what doesn't work, and the reality is that there is actually no counter-example to the idea that mental health parity works and doesn't cost anything. There's not a single example that's been passed in any state where all the horrors ha- that have been uh, suggested would happen uh, have occurred. Uh, not a single example, and so we have a powerful set of... Of actual experiences to demonstrate that uh, it is worth putting in. It is worth putting in on a uniform basis nationally so that we have some standards. And in fact, what's occurred, I think, is the value of mental health uh, being treated as any other illness and a uniformity has kind of hit the provider community that was so resistant to having parity because they now have so many different systems in every state they have to treat it differently and the administrative expense of dealing with it has sort of caught up to them. They said, wait a second. this." is not worth fighting for. It actually works, so let's make it uniform and put in some federal legislation.
4: Let me respond. Let me just, we can get, many of you See, we're immersed in this topic, so maybe expl- I should explain what parity is. Yes. <laughs> Most insurance programs, private insurance by employers or public insurance programs like Medicaid and Medicare, pay one level of benefit for all the health problems, heart lung and everything else, and they pay less. For mental health and substance abuse, and it's usually a higher copay, or they have a visit limit or a day limit that they don't do for any other medical illness. So that's when we say parity, all we're saying is that they have the same financial limitations or lack thereof for the treatment of the brain that you've got for every other organ. But I would add another factor about why we need federal parity legislation, which is the states, for those of you who track these arcane things... Um, the states only can regulate employers that are fully insured. Uh, because of the ERISA legislation at the federal level, that's what regulates all employers who self-insure. And so the state mandates that have been passed in 30 or 40 states, they are all over the map, I agree with Ron. But the majority of employers, if you're even two or 300 employees, self-insure and you're out from under those state mandates. So, The majority of employed Americans are only going to have parity if it's done on a federal basis. Some have done it voluntarily, and those are great employers, and they themselves have seen that it does not knock their costs way up.
0: Well, I think uh, it was really well illustrated to me uh, by an interaction that I saw Tom Johnson and Ron Bachman have about a year ago when Ron presented about an hour's worth of data showing that, in fact, it is affordable and it saves money to have parity. It's good for business. And after hearing all of that, Tom's reaction was, can you prove that?
3: (laughs) Well, I think the big issue in the past in the corporate community, and it certainly existed in the companies where I served as chief executive, was the uh, concern about dramatic cost increases if parity was a become a policy, either voluntary or uh, involuntarily if, if legislated. Um, many of the CEOs said to me that we think there could be as much as a 40% increase in our healthcare cost if we provide uh, this type of coverage. Well, what Ron was able to demonstrate was in a convincing, objective way that can, I think, withstand any test of, a, uh, of an accountant or certainly an objective accountant uh, or, or, or any financial analyst is that by providing health care, mental health care, you can reduce absenteeism, you can restore to full productivity many people who do as I did, show up for work many times in almost a zombie-like state, unable to function well. So not only do we have more productive employees, we have less absenteeism, and the cost of this is very, very small. Ron?
5: <laughs> well, I think that employers have certainly come around to understanding the um the other cost to their organization, not just the budget line item for health care that so many um, seem to focus on and the idea of absenteeism, disability, workers' comp, uh, all sorts of unscheduled sick days, those sorts of things certainly create a, a savings to the bottom line. There's a report that was done by Dow Chemical as an example just last year where they took a look at all the diagnoses of their employees and said, what is costing us the most money on our bottom line, not just the health expense line, but the rest of the organization in terms of absenteeism, disability, etc." Without any preconceived notion of what the answer was going to be, this was not a mental health study by any means. But the end result was that they found that the number one cost item to their organization, and yes, every company is a little different, but not that different, and we see this over and over again now, the number one cost item was depression double the second item which was musculoskeletal problems which many ways there's a manifestation of depression and stress in your musculoskeletal system so a large part of those claims were probably from from mental illness uh, uh, situations as well Uh, interestingly enough at the federal level the legislation that we've been talking about that has some prospect of passing um, the Congressional Budget Office is the official pricer if you will of federal legislation what's it actually going to cost and their most recent study and without getting into some of the technicalities, they have a gross cost of 0.4 percent without any of these cost offsets to more productive citizens or workers or anything else, with a net cost of 0.16 percent of premiums. I mean, it's almost nothing. It's 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 not even within the rounding error of estimating what healthcare trends and costs are. So, the the the, the debate on cost is over with at this point and. Uh, in an earlier discussion with Mrs. Carter, it's like uh, we just had to tell them, just do it. Uh, quit talking about it. Just do it. And
3: also, I think it's important to mention this fact. Guess what group of people with your tax dollars have parity in their programs? The federal employees. The federal employees. Uh, not all I understand, but most no, all, uh, have all, all this all the with police. tax dollars that you have just uh, paid on April 15th.
5: Yeah, and the study of that, they actually did a great study, right. which uh, Henry is very familiar with as well, and, and the uh, cost studies there uh, were many years on full parity, including substance abuse, and uh, the results were that they couldn't determine any cost impact, they couldn't even figure it out. And when we've asked insurance carriers who in large states like California have had mental health parity implemented, we asked the carriers, "What is your data show after versus before?" And they said it's not even a blip on the radar screen.
4: I, I had the opportunity to testify two weeks ago before Congress in the House on two parity bills. The, there is a Medicare parity bill also that's been introduced because Medicare also has discriminatory benefits for mental health as well as private insurance. And, uh, and the cost issue, you're right. No one countered on the cost, and there were two panels. There were no opposition. Overt opposition. There's a lot of opposition behind the scenes, but it tells you how much the debate has turned. That no one felt comfortable on on the committee or in the expert panels standing up saying we're against this. Doesn't mean it'll pass, but it's got a shot. Um, I think I'd go back to, like to go back to the business group that we've talked about. I had the opportunity as you heard, and Ron Bachman was with me on this task force with the National Business Group on Health. The National Business Group has sort of the health policy arm for large employers. They have 60 of the Fortune 100s or members, if you sort of we're not trying to pick on businesses. I and mean, if you think about how much you know, employers in this country pay the majority of health care costs, um, GM pays $5 billion a year in health care costs. We heard from Bell South it was a $1 billion a year. And you put yourself in the position of these employers. That's not the business they're in, trying to manage the health care system. But they're trying to figure out a cost-effective way to manage all of these dollars. They often don't have the expertise in-house to do it. And particularly with smaller businesses and this national business group on health is there to update the employers about well, what are the trends and that's why we went to them on the behavioral health update and this document that came out about a year ago. Our message to them was if you don't invest in behavioral health you're not going to tackle your productivity problem which you've heard about. There's study after study, this doesn't need to be studied anymore depression, and other mental health problems are your biggest contributor to productivity and absenteeism. The second is that what we've found out is that the chronic medical problems, back disease, diabetes, uh, congestive heart failure, that 20% of the patients or insured persons with those chronic medical illnesses cost about 80% of the total health dollar. And of that group of long-term chronic physical problems, 30 to 50% of them have depression and other mental health and substance abuse problems. And of that subgroup, they cost double on the medical side, double. So if you can do the math and take this uh, 20% subgroup, say almost half of them have a mental health and substance abuse problem, you don't have adequate benefits to treat them, you're not going to address the outcomes of that group, which is what's driving most of the health care costs increase. That was our message to the employers, which is this is in your best interest for a healthy, productive population, whether it's people who could be, just do a better job at work, but also those serious, physically ill people.
0: Well, I'll i think
5: one other item that's sort of off the cost issue, which is sort of my bailiwick, but we're talking about real lives here um, and the cost in, in lives. Uh, the Institute of Medicine, which is a nonpartisan you know, organization that keeps a lot of statistics and makes recommendations, Um, estimates that there's over 700,000 attempted suicides a year. There are over 30,000 suicides a year, most all of which include preventable depression. So we're talking about people dying out there because we're not doing things right. Tom also mentioned the uninsured and the underinsured. The Institute of Medicine, again, says that in the United States, because people are uninsured, there are 18,000 excess deaths, not deaths, excess deaths among the people who are uninsured because they, they do tend to get trauma care, but they don't get the follow-up care because they don't have insurance. You're, they're actually, without throwing out too many statistics here as an actuary, they're actually 25% more likely to die of a trauma if you're uninsured. So the idea of health insurance, health insurance matters. It matters to people's lives, so it's not just a cost issue, It really is about saving lives as well as saving money.
0: Well, and in many ways, I think there's been an echo nationally with a series of reports that have come out. And the last Institute of Medicine report was the one that I had the extreme good fortune and fun working on about how to improve the quality of health care for mental and substance use disorders and the overriding recommendation of that report, and this is from a scientific organization where, and for me, it was pretty frustrating as a non-scientist to be on, the, on this commission committee because if I would say the sky is blue, somebody would say prove it. Everything had to be backed up by research, but at the end of the day, the overriding report recommendation was we cannot improve the quality of health care in America until we improve the quality of care for mental and substance use conditions. And that's going to require payment. We're going to have to have a way to pay for it. Um, I think um, Henry could talk a little more about the behavioral health guide that came out. It was more than about cost. It was also about how to design your benefit.
4: Well, one of the consequences, I think unintended, of blocking or reducing access to specialty mental health services. And what we have seen the trends is that um, patients and consumers go and get their care where they have access financially, and that has become basically general medical care, primary care physicians, internists, pediatricians. The majority of psychiatric medications today, over 70% are prescribed not by specialists, but by internists, family practitioners, et cetera. And unfortunately, even though those, this is not to be critical of them, they're trying their best to handle many, many problems in a short period of time. But study after study has shown for us that the quality of that intervention, which is usually only psychiatric drugs, is very poor. And a recent study about a year ago, they measured minimum conditions for treatment of depression those, which, and it was really a bare minimum in terms of quality uh, metrics, uh, the, the uh, folks going to primary care met that minimum 12% of the time. Those going to see a specialist was about 45%. So we have some room there for improvement. The benefits drive this. You have parity on drug treatment. If you get an antidepressant, you would pay the same as if you get a heart drug, same copay, same access or not. Uh, if you go see a primary care doctor, you have a lower copay and no visit limits. If you go see a mental health specialist, you have a higher copay, an out of pocket expenditure, et cetera. We have heard many families, health professionals, politicians, business leaders bemoan the fact that we are drugging America too much, whether it is stimulant medication, too many antidepressants. Um, this is not to say these medications have not been a wonderful and amazing addition to the effective treatment of serious and moderate mental health problems, but many times they're the only thing that are given. You really can't get psychotherapy or other talk therapies that Tom mentioned in a primary care physician's office. They don't provide it. So that one of the consequences is we have driven most people to go get their care, and if you're looking at the quality of it as a nation, and these are people that are insured. This is not the uninsured. This is a middle-class population that are getting their care, it's pretty poor. And it's the consequence of how we have incentivized people. It's a perverse incentive, really. And that was a large part about this report, to try to get employers, who are our largest payers of health insurance, to recognize this imbalance. And what people complain about later about the quality, say, well, you've got a design here that's, that's your only option if you're a consumer.
0: I think Mrs. Carter said something really profound just before she sat down when she said if, it, if insurance pays for it, it will be OK to get it. That goes right to the heart of the stigma. And Tom has thought a lot about stigma and how it gets between people and, and treatment. Um, I was enormously impressed a few months ago when, as part of this Business Leaders Initiative, we gave some awards. And, Ron, you're going to have to help me. Which company was it? that We gave an award for one thing that had to do with their mental health benefits, and we learned from the man who received it that all of the senior executives, as they reach a certain level, are assigned a psychologist. And everybody knows it. Was that?
4: As a coach.
0: As A, as a coach. I thought it was Southern Company too. And, and he talked about how that really amazingly destigmatized going for any kind of therapy, treatment, coaching uh, within his company. But stigma is a huge barrier inside companies.
3: Yes. No reaction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's it. We just agree. Huh?
3: Well, I, I made the point that. Um, If a person is on the way up in a company, uh, no matter where the starting point might have been at the lowest level, and uh, you're looking at a promotion track, uh, if a competitor or a critic or just uh, offhand comment is made that, well, you know that Ron has a mental health problem, think about it it affects, uh, in many cases, the perception. I mean, it's the perception that somehow you have a person who is defective. That is not true, but it's the perception. In the armed services and in the intelligence community and with airline pilots, they are very concerned about the loss of their licenses, the loss of their security clearances, and the way in which uh, public acknowledgement or public disclosure that they're taking a mood-altering drug, which is an antidepressant technically, uh, can affect them in their own uh, careers. Uh, We need to do more about this, and I think uh, the Carter uh, fellowships, uh, the media fellowships have been a tremendous step uh, in that direction I hope many of you had a chance to see the product of these fellows and their work uh, in, in various publications and uh, broadcast outlets and others that's been one major step uh, I think it's going to take more and more of us standing up to say that I have depression and uh, I am significantly better today because I've been able to deal with it uh, openly uh, and, and, and to provide more leadership in it but I should also say to you, do not risk your job, do not risk your depression, do not risk your security clearance, do not risk your, uh, uh, your pilot's license uh, if it's going to be used against you in your workplace. We've come a long way, but we have a much, much longer way to go on this whole issue of stigma, and we're getting the five minute warning and we need to let people yeah. ask questions from the floor. Yeah.
0: Tom, let me ask you a question. Have you been sorry that you have spoken publicly?
3: I have not been sorry at all. Uh, What has happened, though, is by going public, I have had, I think at last count, 136 people who have come to me who have wanted just to talk about uh, their mental health problem that they are still dealing with in secret. Uh, And, of course... uh, to all of them I say, go to get the diagnosis, go to get the evaluation, the treatment. Uh, you must do that. Uh, but uh, I also uh, have, 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 uh, I have no regrets. I do know a few of us who went public who have had that regret because my, I'm not a golfer, but in one case, uh, one of my friends said by the time he gets to about the third or fourth hole on the golf course, in looking at making a business deal. The people who are making the major multi-million dollar business deal will say, now Jack, uh, how are you?
0: Can you perform, in other words? Well, I'm not sorry you've gone public. Not for a minute, Tom. I Uh, I believe that part of our salvation is the large number of people from all walks of lives and all ages who are beginning to be more open about their illnesses and i will share with you that i have a granddaughter i mentioned that i have a granddaughter i really have two that are treated for a mental illness the older one tells me that i can use her name and tell her story and i was so proud of her last summer when she stood in front of a group of about 300 people and she was actually receiving an award for advocacy she has beautiful flaming red hair And Jessica said, do you know that it is more normal to have depression than it is to have red hair? (laughs) And I've got both, and I'm not embarrassed about either one. I think that's part of our salvation, breaking down. The younger people are so much opener about it because they are being diagnosed in increasing numbers. Still, only a third of them get the care they need, but increasing numbers they are, and I think that begins to that begins to break it down in a way nothing else can. I'd like to ask, pose one last question, and then we will take questions from you. What would you have this group of esteemed leaders in their communities do about this?
3: Well, I would like for everybody in this room to become a real active advocate of, uh, of, 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 of the issues we've discussed tonight. I fear that we've become too much of a spectator society that we are sitting up in the stands and expecting others to really do this. You do not know how important your voice is, your letter to the editor, your meeting with your with with, with the officers of your company to express yourselves on this, uh, your letters to your congressman, or your meetings when they have town hall meetings. I mean, I saw in my era in Washington uh, when the public really uh, became significantly involved in shaping legislation, uh, groups joining together to mobilize, and I really believe we need to do much more of that. I mean, if I could leave one message, think about as you drive home tonight, what could you do uh, to advance this cause? Because it can be done, it can be done.
5: I would say that, earlier I said insurance matters, I think regulation and laws matter, and so I think your help and support with legislation that's ongoing, developing—we're in the middle of a transformation. We're not in the middle of reform. Uh, I think healthcare is going to be a major topic of the next election. It's been—it's on. You know, everybody's affected by it one way or the other, and so as you move into major changes in healthcare, which I think we're we're on on the verge of doing, um, real change requires real change. Uh, we can't tinker at the edges anymore there's got to be major changes in the system of delivery and access and insurance and underwriting and acceptance the whole ball of wax everybody all the stakeholders you know are holding on to their own little turfs, and they all need to change and the only way you're going to get that kind of major movement is with a public that believes it ought to be changed along with uh, elected officials that are have enough guts and uh, to stand up and actually make the changes so I think it's a matter of, of the kind of support Tom was talking about, but in, you can't win the political battle and the policy battles unless you have won the public battles. And so I think within each of us, as we have our own issues around depression or around a family member, I would say that we probably all have more experience with a family member or our own personal lives where we have been touched by depression. Anx- high anxieties. We don't have to all, you know, have exposures with some of the more significant, um, uh, serious mental illnesses, but we all have had a flavor of that, if not, if not worse. And, and how did you react to it? How did you understand it or accept it? Uh, how did you feel about helping that person? Did you categorize them in some sort of way that, that would have uh, unconsciously or consciously uh, exacerbated the stigma? Um, whether it 's a joke or whether it 's this or, or, or that understanding, so I think your own personal understanding actually has more of an impact as it gathers up sort of a public uh, acceptance of these conditions so that people are more willing to seek out care and are willing to talk about it. One of the great values of having somebody like Tom Johnson work with us locally on issues is uh, he sort of set a standard. That he would like the CEOs and the board chairman that have all these interle- act- inter interrelated uh, board memberships to be able to go to a board of directors meeting at that kind of a level of executive involvement and be able to talk about their depression as much as they would talk about a quadruple bypass. Uh, we would then be at a point where there's a greater level of acceptance and understanding about this is not weakness, this is not a weak character, it's not just buck up and you, you know, get yourself better, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That is a chemical imbalance and, and a treatable illness that, um, that, that really uh, can be dealt with and and we can we can improve the lot of a lot of lives if if we have that kind of openness and capability. Um, as somebody else I work with um, uh, says, um, what part of modern science do you not understand? Thank you.
4: I'll be brief. Two two things I would say. One is there's almost no family, at least in the immediate family, certainly not in the extended family, who doesn't have someone with either a mental health or substance abuse problem of some level of severity. So all I would say is encourage them to get treatment. The second is, as an employee or an employer, whichever you represent, to try to ask your executives, your HR department, what is the status of the, of your mental health benefits, and how well is it being done, and how well is it being coordinated. You're welcome. This guide that we talked about, this from the National Business Group, is available in public form. And I would encourage just some individual advocacy within the employers. Without necessarily disclosing that you have a mental health, you can quote this panel. So you're not uh, having to disclose anything.
0: All right. We have about 24 minutes. If you'd like to ask a question, there's a mic on each side. And is there one upstairs? Yes, there's one upstairs, so just form a queue, and as long as we can take questions, we will, and I would reinforce that we will ask you to be relatively brief in your questions so we can get as many as possible. Yes, sir.
5: Uh, Bill Boyce from Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, Particularly to Henry Harbin, you stated that in your testimony to Congress, you're not finding much public opposition, but behind the scenes, and I wonder if you have a guess or an analysis of what is going on behind the scenes? Is it still stigma or lobbying of some kind or what?
4: Both, I would say. I think there's a, there were two bills, the private insurance parity bill that Ron mentioned er- earlier. There's, there are differences between the House and Senate bill. The House bill would be much clearer about what an employer has to offer. The Senate bill's a little more flexible and looser and more dangerous from that point of view. They both would be in advance. Uh so there's a lot of lobbying to make sure the Senate bill goes and not the House. But the Medicare bill, um, while well, again there's no overt opposition, it will become a cost issue and with all the other costs of Medicare, there'll be a constant kind of background, now's not the time, now's not the time. Mrs. Carter's heard that longer than any of us, I think. and She's been advocating for this for a long time and and, and you know, it's we're tired of hearing that, you know. Now's not the healthcare always costs a lot of money. So even if it's only what 0.16% increase, that'll be used as a problem.
0: Okay. Yes. Uh, yes, Sheila Fai from Miami, Florida. Uh, on the stigma issue, I was wondering if you all could address that in light of what happened last week at Virginia Tech. The university <coughs> obviously was a university, but for five of the victims, it was a workplace. And I was wondering how the mental health community reacted to that whole issue of, oh my gosh, what do we
1: do about folks with mental challenges, getting guns, et cetera? Was there sort of a collective, oh, now we have to deal with this kind of reaction to that?
3: Well, I should tell you that I do not know the answer. I have read all that I can read about Virginia Tech. I guess viewed as much as can be viewed about Virginia Tech. And, you know, all of us, I think, in our own way, just shared enormous personal pain uh, that was inflicted uh, on on those lives. Um, If you look at all of it, clearly, the shooter's medical condition had been identified. Uh, He had been treated. Uh, There had been recommendations made by uh, his faculty members, uh, teachers, uh, that had had recognized uh, potential danger. Uh, I mean, it comes into issues of personal privacy because uh, clearly, in my opinion, there was a person who should have been either voluntarily or involuntarily uh, uh, committed for long-term treatment. But he had been, at least on a short-term basis, uh, 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 in, 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 in a form of treatment. Uh, I guess all of us need, just as we try to recognize the signs of depression in others, I mean, I almost can recognize the signs of depression in others, and then offer to help uh, where possible, but there have been some times when I actually have found it necessary to intervene, and asked at least two people, would they go with me to see my doctor, and uh, as we drove up to the Emory emergency room, they realized that we were going to meet three psychiatrists uh, there, who were going to either agree, he would he would agree either voluntarily, or if the doctors felt that it was so severe, they would have involuntary. One of one of those, in my case, was made a voluntary decision to go in, uh, and, and in the other case, uh, two Atlanta police officers uh, took that person to uh, involuntary. Uh, uh, and, and I should just say that both people today are in remarkably good mental health. But, I, you know, I just don't know the answer. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, it gets into issues of, I mean, profound issues of, 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 of psychiatry and uh, schools, availability of guns. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. And if I were to try to say more than I've said, I would be going well beyond my, my limits.
4: I will say a couple of things. I think it's a very, tr- I agree with Tom, it's a very tricky issue. One of the unique things about mental health as opposed to other health care problems is you don't, because these are diseases of the brain, it can often affect your judgment and your cognition for some people. And um, you t- sort of don't have that as big a problem when you're dealing with other serious medical problems in terms of the consent to treatment and um this is a small group of people there are many people get treated successfully sometimes involuntarily most often voluntarily um i I think this tragedy points in the other the others before it point to the need for continued investment in research for better identification and treatment of these illnesses Uh, the stigma clearly is a factor here i mean the 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 Acknowledgement of a problem by peers and/or the person themselves, and the willingness to—Tom shares what he went through before you went to treatment. Um, you can imagine, as you're a college kid, the stigma of saying, raising your hand, saying, I, "I'm, you know, I've got this level of a problem, and I'm going to go get treatment." it's are not going to be very accepted. So it kind of—it ex- really exemplifies many things we've talked about. Um, but I think this issue, and I, I don't think there is an organized response from the mental, most of the national mental health groups at this time. I think partly because they recognize the very delicate balance between coercion, if it's done too quickly and too soon, blocks access to treatment, who will go if you're going to be published in a registry somewhere just because you saw treatment, versus the need to protect the safety of others. It's a very difficult dilemma.
5: I'd I'd add from a slightly different part of that tragedy in that. It was well accepted as it was a few weeks earlier or a month or so ago when there was a shooting at CNN headquarters here in Atlanta to bring in counselors Um, that was accepted Uh, so a general um, awareness of the value of providing uh, mental health emotional support to the victims uh, was 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 well accepted and I think that's that's a positive sign uh, much like um, Uh, a greater recognition of our veterans coming back from the Iraqi war that there's a lot of post-traumatic stress syndrome that needs to be dealt with and and, and better served so you can't change something you don't acknowledge and acknowledging that there's a problem and that there's a possibility of helping I think we're moving in the right direction from that standpoint. Well
0: and I'd like to say that you know we do have laws I think everywhere in America now, that if you're a danger to yourself or others, there are ways to force treatment. We do know that forced treatment tends to drive people away from future treatment. So you have to pay real attention to those civil rights issues. And and the danger is an overreaction. In Georgia, in the last, well, it was about 12 years ago, there was a bill brought before our General Assembly that was introduced, and it was in committee, that would have put an orange stripe on all driver's license behind the head of anyone who had been involuntarily committed to a state mental hospital. It was seriously discussed and what stopped it was a wonderful man named Al Golden who came and talked about being one of the people who was a liberator of Buchenwald concentration camp and said this is like a tattoo for these folks. And then we learned later that one of the legislators' granddaughter who was 15 about to get her driver's license had been involuntarily committed. And she said, the last thing this kid needs is a sign that everybody sees that says, crazy lady, crazy kid, you know. So we were able to beat it back, but those kinds of things will come back. We have to be so cautious. One of the, one of the things we have to remember, too, is that people who have mental illnesses are not more violent than the general population until substance abuse is combined with the mental illness, and then there is some some increased risk. They are far more likely to be the victim of a crime than to be the perpetrator of the crime, and one of the things that has given me most hope that we will get to a rational discourse about this was an article I read in the paper about a spontaneous memorial that had been put up on the Virginia Tech campus by students, and they had gone and found large rocks. They appeared to be about this big, and they had written the name of 33 people on them.
1: 33 instead of 32. Right. That's great. That's great. But
3: I should just emphasize that we have a certain percentage of Americans (sighs) that have mental illness. We also have a high percentage of the American population with weapons or access to weapons that are designed to kill people, not to kill animals, birds, but to kill people. And it, it is, it is, it is, a, it is a, an unbelievable public policy issue uh, for all of us uh, to consider. I always ask just the question, you know, why should we be authorizing bullets that are designed to penetrate the body armor of our policemen when all of them Virtually in every city, county, state in America, say they should not be permitted to be manufactured or sold. Those bullets are not helpful in killing a deer, uh, necessary. Uh, I mean, and we as a society have to face up to some really tough issues, uh, and there are those of you in this room who are members of the NRA. And there are members of in this room, I'm sure, who are very strongly opposed to the type of freedoms that exist with weapons or access to weapons. But it is an issue I think that we have to continue to uh, to examine. And ultimately, the public's voice needs to be heard on this uh, in in ways that perhaps is not being heard today.
0: I think we may have added something to the list of things this audience could do, and that is become engaged in the discussion that inevitably will follow the Virginia Tech shooting in ways that bring rational discourse to it. Yes, sir, next. Over here, this side. Sorry, thank you. Where, somebody in the top? Okay, good. Here, and then we'll go one top. Okay. Uh, My name is Sue Duchenwa. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. I have depression and anxiety. Um, I'm just admitting that to everybody make sure we come forward. Um, I also work for one of those very enlightened top Fortune 100 companies that have excellent benefit, benefits. But there are a lot of people now who don't have benefits. We've lost a lot of jobs in our economy. Jobs are being offshored. People have less insurance, even if you're in the middle class, let alone people in poverty. Um, and, and although I understand the issue of parity, I'm not real clear I, that, that I heard in the panel discussion what perhaps the Carter Center of your individual organizations are doing around resolving this problem, this public policy problem, very clearly about the uninsured. I mean, we have more people uninsured all the time, and you're not going to get to parity unless you have insurance in the first place. So can you give me some sense of how we think we're doing on that?
3: Well, Well, I have a personal point of view. Uh, We are spending now nearing $1 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan to hopefully enable those people to live in some form of democracy. We are at at, at a cost not only of nearing a trillion dollars, but more than 3,000 American lives. Our economy, incidentally, is rolling along very well. I think one issue that should be discussed, and I would just put it in a way, hopefully, that would appeal to Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, that ultimately all working Americans, that's for the conservatives, are all the working work? Americans will be insured. And I would love to see an analysis by Ron Bachman of what, <laughs> of what that would do in terms of the people who we could enable to be more productive, to have less absenteeism, to, 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 to who, people who are out there struggling with their health problems, uh, what about an America where all working people could be insured as a part of their income for working? A giant pool. Uh, I just would love to see it explored. I would say the um, when when people,
4: if you're asking you know, us as mental health people, those of us who are. Um, What we're doing about the uninsured, my answer is generally it is a major policy and economic problem for this country, but some of us who've been fighting these advocacy issues for behavioral health, you know, it's hard to focus and try to think we're going to tackle the uninsured problem, too. I think if we can't even get adequate delivery of services and funding of services for those people that are insured, I think that needs to be our first imperative. And those of us who, those of the, who can work on gun control and the uninsurance and mental health, more power to them. <laughs> yeah.
5: Well, it is my mission, uh, actually, to deal with the uninsured, if you heard the intro. Um, and I think we are in a great debate. And, and I think it's a matter of, at this point, who do you trust? Uh, and and that's, that's sort of at the core of a solution. And there are, are people who say, I trust government and distrust business because business is all for profits and you got this greedy... Uh, CEOs making multi-million dollar salaries, and I trust the government, and I'd like them to develop a program to solve our uninsured program. I, I don't want to trust either. Right. Well, <laughs> and, but, but, but yeah. Well, help me with the stereotype for a moment. Um, and so you have a set of solutions that's more government-oriented if that's who you trust and who you distrust. On the other hand, you have people who say, well... I distrust government because they get big bureaucracies, they're faceless, there's no, you know, there's fraud and abuse, and I trust the value of the marketplace to to create competitive products and services. And that leads to a different set of solutions. And I think we're in a great debate just about where we go there. I, I did work with the Clinton administration uh, in analyzing the cost of the 1993 Health Security Act and, and the mental health pieces there. And. And I think that's gonna be part of our debate. And I was very fortunate, and, and with Mrs. Carter's help, I, I was looking for some inspiration a while back on how you bring people who have such different points of view together. And, and, and this issue around healthcare, I was trying to figure out, because I work with both sides of the aisle, how do you get people who feel passionately about each point of view to actually come together to resolve a, a problem of such major consequence? And she helped me uh, get with President Carter for a little inspiration as to uh, how he does that and how they sit down in the Carter Center here, and bring together such diverse opinions and points of view to solve problems and so i 'm still trying to learn how to do that, but i 've been inspired to at least continue with that uh, that dialogue and, uh, and and find some solutions and I think we will we have to because again we are we are killing people. The Institute of Medicine, as another example, says that from hospital errors hospital errors, we are killing between. 46,000 and 98,000 people a year. Now, think about if we had an airplane crash every week of several hundred people that and we had 96,000 airline deaths in a year, it would be on the front pages of every newspaper every we we be solving the problem. But we don't do it in healthcare. We have 6 to 8,000 people die every year from medication errors. And yet, you know, that we we, we had 3,000 people die in 9/11. All right? We have multiples of that that are actually dying in our current healthcare system and it's not working whether it's, and, and we actually have the largest national healthcare system in the world. About half of our health care is paid by government programs, Medicare, Medicaid, children's programs, VA system, and, and so we actually have the largest national healthcare system in the world and it doesn't work. In the private market we've got the largest in the world and it doesn't work. So we've got like the, the worst of both worlds.
0: We're going to take one last question, and those of you who have been waiting can come up and ask questions after. We'll take the one upstairs.
2: Okay. We've heard. T- t- can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Hi. We've heard tonight about proposed uh, legislation for corporations to provide adequate co- coverage. But what's being done with the insurance carriers and drug companies to um, support the parity of mental and physical wellness together?
5: Well, the insurance carriers are sort of. That, that's who. The legislation would generally be targeted at when they're selling insured products, uh, as as Henry mentioned. The state legislation involves people who put the insurance company at risk for whether the premiums paid are adequate. That's an insured product. Uh, the employer just pays a monthly premium, if you will, for those covered lives and parity. Uh, at the state level and at the federal level would affect some of those, although the federal level only affects employers of 50 lives or more, the way it's currently described. So there's the very small employers would not be affected by the federal legislation, but would continue to be affected by these 40 or so state uh, uh, legislative uh, passing of, of, of parity. The, the larger employers are self-insured, which means that carriers only process claims. They pay the checks, if you will, based upon what the employer tells them to do. So. So that's a different world. When you're legislating uh, uh, mental health to be treated, you're really telling the employers at that point, you need to build your benefit programs that pay in this basis, but the carriers are not responsible in that way uh, that they would be when they're fully insured. They're carrying out the message of what the employer's required. So you kind of have to work both the employer side and the carrier side uh, to get the full um, spectrum of coverage for, uh, for all employees.
4: But the federal bill would do both.
0: And one Maybe of the things that gives them. me hope is that we have an increasing number of CEOs talking to CEOs, and they are the ultimate decider. Uh, what they purchase is what is provided, and as, as that rolls out, I think, I think that's where we're going to see real change.
3: I will make one comment that will make me uh, popular with the pharmaceutical companies and one k- statement will make me unpopular with the pharmaceutical companies. First, I am indebted to the pharmaceutical companies for the magnificent research that they have done and continue to do on behalf of all of us, not only in the field of mental health but across the board, were it not for enormous commitment of their uh, funds into research we would be in a significantly poorer place than we are today. So, thank you, pharmaceutical companies, for doing that, particularly when we've had as much uh, lack, well, even cutbacks in federal and state funding uh, for research in a variety of ways. We must not be anti-pharmaceutical companies in that regard. However. I believe that we should be able to buy our pharmaceuticals, our drugs, just the way the Canadians and at the same price as the Canadians. I mean, we, we are in a global economy, a global market. Uh, and I also should just say one other positive thing. The pharmaceutical companies ship, not only through the Carter Center and many others, millions and millions of low-cost drugs uh, to Africa, and uh, whether well, it's in the field of Guinea worm and many others. So there are two sides, a very, very positive side, I think, to the, to the industry, and yet they continue to fight uh, against uh, uh, the type of access to the prices that we could get if we could buy them out of Canada.
0: I will ask you all to do one last thing as a group. Recognize what's right, and that's access to mental health services, and recognize what's wrong. Which is unreasonable barriers, and fight it. We are at a place that is founded by people who recognized that segregation was wrong and fought it when it was not only unpopular but dangerous to do so. Can we do less about this? Let's get them. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.